welcome to the Glass Frog Podcast. I am your co-host, Rebecca Cassiano. And I'm your co-host, Jen Puma. Gang, we've got three words for y'all. We all count. If you don't know about this organization and their resources, prepare to have your minds blown. So We All Count is a project to increase equity in data science, and it is the brainchild of Heather Krause. And so if you're thinking right now, I'm, quote, you know, not a data person, unquote, and you're about to jump ship on this episode for, you know, the latest episode of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, I just implore you to stop and reconsider for a minute because the work that Heather is spearheading is really not solely for the data nerds among us. You know, she makes the point in this conversation that the work she's doing is really for evaluators of all stripes, as well as consumers of program data. Like you don't need to be technical to be thinking about equity in your data. So please, please keep listening. And then you could go listen to Conan's podcast. Yeah, you could think of our podcast as like dinner and Conan can be your dessert. Yes. You could be like your nice like crumb cake, oh. if that's what you're into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Bobka, if you're Jen. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. So Heather is a trained statistician, uh, and she's kind of at this point on a mission to overturn the myth that equitable data practices are not rigorous data practices. So her passion for data equity comes, as she very bluntly puts it, from, quote, being cursed with having seen too much and having the privilege of getting to do something about it. So she tells this great origin story about how we all count came out of this decision to shine a light on deeply inequitable data practices that she was both using in her work, but also seeing and experiencing in the field while she was doing her work. So she went from this like, I'm out of here, burn your bridges (laughs) moment to what ended up being kind of a really transformative moment that changed the whole trajectory of her career. And we're grateful for it because we got to learn from her today. So We talk with Heather about what equity means in the context of data science. We also talk a little bit about what data science is, what that means. And she talks to us about how she guides her clients in this work while continuing to do her own learning and unlearning, which she calls, by the way, learning out loud, which Jen and I really like. Mm -hmm. Um, And she, every step of the way, acknowledges that it's messy and imperfect, but also that we have no choice but to do this work because the status quo is untenable. Yeah. And Heather was just fantastic to talk to. And we felt like immediately within the first 30 seconds of talking with her, like she was this kindred spirit because she really has a penchant for the practical. And on their We All Count website, there's a tools subpage and there are several free resources that are available to you to get you thinking about and examining equity in your data collection and reporting. So I am 100% confident that after this conversation, you are going to want to check out the We All Count website. It also has a bunch of other resources on there, like her uh, newsletter you can sign up for. She's got blog posts as well. She's, bless her heart, like a regular blog poster. So she's just doing it all. She's super busy. And we're so, so appreciative that she made time for us today and that we can then pass this on to you. So Before we get into it, Rebecca, as is our way, can you tee up who our unwitting sponsor is for this episode? I sure can. Uh, And your sense of gratitude there provided Mm. just the perfect little segue um, because we 
We're so grateful that Heather came on the show. And this is the season of gratitude. Mm -hmm. So whether you celebrate Thanksgiving or not, we know a lot of people do and a lot of people find it problematic. But either way, Jen and I are strong proponents of taking kind of this time of year to really step back and think about what we're grateful for, the ways in which our lives are blessed by one another. And so the unwitting sponsor for this episode is what we will call the gratitude season, Mm. which includes, but is not limited to the celebration of Thanksgiving (laughs) and also just the informal sharing of gratitude among friends and family. So I will say that one thing I'm very grateful for is Jen, my colleague. She's (sighs) always so wonderful to work with. Mm. She is thoughtful as a friend and a coworker. She's smart. So she, I can trust her to always do the right thing. She has good judgment and she's also really funny and she makes me laugh in Slack, which is really on most days what keeps me going. So thank you, Jen. I'm very grateful for you. Oh, well, flattery will get you everywhere, Rebecca, but thank you. That is, that is very kind. I am also very grateful for you. We'll just turn this into a love fest and for our our work together and um, yeah, just for the opportunity to learn. I mean, I kind of come to this work not trained in the same way that you are. And so I always have this feeling of like, oh, I, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And then I get the opportunity to learn from conversations like this and from your beautiful brain. So I'm always appreciative of the, just everything that you extend to me and having the space to figure it out in my own way too. So thank you for that trust. So yeah, with that reason for the season, gratitude, yeah, let's let's do it up, kids. What do you say? Get to it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome to the Glass Frog Podcast. Thank you so, so much for joining us. We've been really excited to talk to you because we get your newsletters and we love them. We love how approachable they are. We love how they're approachable, yet you're really digging into some really thorny issues and it's um you do it very deftly like you, you you really do a really nice balance and so it feels like a privilege to get to be with the person behind the newsletter so kudos <laughs> thank you so much i really <laughs> appreciate it those are very kind words oh well deserved and more but so it, you know it'd be great to just start by learning a little bit about your background and your passion for data equity i'm sure i'm curious like how did you come to this, this work where, you know, no one starts as a baby saying I'm going to do data equity work. I don't, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if anyone does, but I, I definitely didn't. Uh, I, I definitely started from a young age knowing that I wanted to do data work and that I wanted to do data work in relation to people and the public and social sector. And that's what I founded my first company on. So my first company was supplying data solutions and quantitative work and impact analysis to governments and nonprofits and social sector organizations. And because I was a consultant, I kind of had one foot in a lot of different experiences. And the work that I did was largely, at least for the first decade or so, focused almost entirely in the global South. So places like rural Bangladesh, Papua New Guinea, Tanzania, and 
that was an even more unusual experience in that. So I'm a trained mathematical statistician. (laughs) I don't have like a humanitarian background or liberal arts. I have a math and science background. And I was in a very unusual experience where I would be spending part of my time kind of collecting data on the ground in the global South. And then I would take that data and analyze it and then turn it into, you know, a very slick, informative report that would get delivered to the fancy boardrooms in Manhattan, DC, Toronto, Seattle. And it was that experience of having direct ex- direct experience in both of those worlds that led me to realize that we had some very, very serious problems in the way that quantitative was, data was being perceived and used and that even some very, very well-educated, very well-intentioned, very smart people were using quantitative data in really racist ways, really colonial ways, myself very much included. I mean, it wasn't like I was looking around and saying everyone else. uh, I, I very much realized that in my desire to kind of be useful, I was, you know, going to the global South, extracting data from mostly poor brown women, processing that data and selling it to mostly rich white men. So I myself was in the, I was being a colonialist and I was like, that was never the plan. How, how, what the heck? And so really how, how we all count got started was that I had figured that I was just going to leave the sector that I was going to take my quantitative skills and kind of go work in the financial sector because at least there was congruence. Nobody was pretending to try and help anybody. They were all like, yeah, we're just trying to make as much money as possible. So I was like, well, at least it's congruent. And so what I did was spend the kind of the last six months of my previous company implementing this new project, this project that we called We All Count. And what we did was we just put all our cards on the table. We, we said, we assumed that we were no longer ever going to have a job in the social sector or the public sector. And we just said exactly what we thought, exactly what we were seeing. And rather than it kind of being my burning bridges tour, it turned out to get a tremendous response of, of interest and more than interest was resonance. What became clear to me really quickly was that there were a lot of people in a bunch of different sectors that were feeling the same thing, but didn't have any tools to help people move from, we're really dissatisfied with the way we use data to, we know a different way to use data. So that's what we all count decided that we would do. (laughs) Instead of going to work for a bank, we would devote our, the rest of our uh, professional lives to building, implementing tools that allow people to move from gee, we'd really like to not use data like a racist to, oh, we now know how to use data in an anti-racist way. What a tough moment to palette to like Mm -hmm. see yourself as part of a problem and then make a decision that like extracts yourself and, and puts yourself like in this other very vulnerable position to be like, okay, we're just going to put it all out there. And like you said, just be ready to burn the bridges and whatever happens. Like that's. uh, Uh, Yes, you're very kind, but I don't want to claim too much vulnerability because I still had highly marketable skills Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I mean, I could take my quantitative skills and get a job at a bank for sure. And so it was vulnerable in terms of like maybe my community, 
but it wasn't vulnerable the way that other people have to really put their livelihoods on the line. Mm -hmm. So I don't want I don't want to claim too much credit for that because I certainly had a plan. I understand that. I have like a kind of silly question, but in, in the many hats that you wear, one of them is crisis consultants. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, I feel like I need that in my life. What, what can you <laughs> explain your role as a crisis consultant? Sure. Sure. So there are two kind of roles that I play a lot that I wasn't anticipating. One is crisis consultant and one is data therapist. <laughs> and uh, that, that is really when, when we start naming all of the equity issues that are going on with data, people often experience both personal and professional kind of disintegration where, you know, we're saying that so much of what you have been taught is necessary for scientific rigor is actually just somebody's habit or somebody's preference and that you don't have to follow these rules that you thought you had to follow in order to produce rigorous quantitative science. And so uh, people often go into crisis (laughs) about that. Or, or just are so frustrated and have been frustrated for decades that they really just need to talk about it for a couple of sessions. So the other thing we do as a crisis consultant is that because we have so many different tools in our toolkit, when something happens like COVID and all of a sudden you can't follow any of your data plans because of our long experience working in the field in the Southern hemisphere, we have a, uh, we're pretty good at pivoting. <laughs> I hear that. So I have a couple of definitional questions just to make sure that we're all on the same page, but also our our listeners are on the same page. So on your website, on the We All Count website, it says you're a project to increase equity in data science. And so I just want to talk about kind of first, what, what would you include in the umbrella of data science? And then second, what does it mean to have equity in data science? I think it's, I will say, if you go to your website and if you do a little bit of work just to get up to speed on this, it is implicit. But for me, just having kind of like a firm definition really helps me think through kind of what it is versus what it isn't. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. And our definition of data science is extremely broad. It doesn't align in any way with any of the conventional things that you might read if you were looking for kind of a a corporate or a business definition. Our definition, our operational definition of data science is anybody that's working with quantitative data. And we work from with like people who are doing very, very complicated network analysis, predictive algorithm building, things like that. And then we also work with people that are, you know, collecting data on on young women experiencing homelessness on a mobile phone or an Excel spreadsheet or a piece of paper. So that's pretty simple answer. The equity question (laughs) is a much more complicated answer. And we are very, very careful to not have a one static definition of equity. We have the concept of equity, which is about attentiveness to power, attentiveness to access to opportunities, attentiveness to access to resources, and the way that those are distributed fairly, not dependent on, you know, somebody's social identities or, or other things. But we often get asked <laughs> things like, you know, what is your definition of equity? And our work is 
very specifically focused on building tools that will help you achieve your definition of equity because the actual like kind of operational definition of equity is going to vary so much from context to context from geography from community from time period and that the lack of one standard definition is is what we consider to be our kind of first step towards achieving equity <laughs> and that there's so much of kind of conventional use of data is oriented around mass standardization and mass scale so that we don't really have to pay attention to the people. We can just, you know, get some data, get some numbers and, you know, calculate some impact. And that, of course, is very, very directly the way that one or two small slices of worldviews get to suddenly accidentally be in control of everything that counts as evidence or research. Mm-hmm. So first I'll say, I so appreciate that you're kind of focused on quantitative research. Cause I think quite often when I hear these conversations being had, often the solution is like, well, we need to bring in, you know, qualitative data so that we can richly understand what's happening contextually in a community or in a classroom or whatever it is you're studying. And you're, they're right. Of course that needs to happen. But it doesn't solve the quantitative data problem, which is that sometimes you need to be able to make claims about populations. And one of the ways you do that is using quantitative data. And so how do you do that in a way that's fair uh, and equitable, but also, you know, realistic, because we're not going to do focus groups with, you know, 7 million people. (laughs) And so I I just I love that you're kind of Mm -hmm. figuring out how to do this with quantitative data, because I think sometimes in education circles anyway, it's often like, you know, well, let's, let's talk to the kids. Let's, let's understand what the kids are doing. And of course, that's what you should be doing. But it's also not a solution when you're trying to understand like what's happening, let's say at the population level or even the subpopulation level. Mm-hmm. So that was just my. <laughs> yeah, I really agree very much with that idea that this doesn't preclude qualitative work at all. I just am not a qualitative scientist. And I, I very, there's many, many different ways of knowing. Quantitative data is one of them. And I, I firmly do believe that there are things that you can understand that you would miss if you talk to every single child in a school. You would still miss some of the things that you would be able to see with quantitative data. And also quantitative data, for better or for worse, is just an extremely believed in invested in and used resource right now. And so it felt to us like, well, we need to kind of harness the power of that resource because, you know, everybody will say, you know, well, quantitative data doesn't lie. And that is true. If used with a great deal of care, it is true that quantitative data doesn't lie. But the question is, whose truth is it telling? Yeah. I'm wondering if you could share some examples, maybe from your early work that kind of led you into this equity work of times that you've seen kind of inequity in data science. I think that would be really helpful with my obsession with definitions in terms of thinking about what, what, you know, what is equity not? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yes, I could, I could talk to you for days about examples of inequity in data science, not only that I've seen, but that I myself have done before I figured out what, what I needed to do differently. 
one of the ones that really affected me and, and I still talk about today, even in my workshops or talks, is we did a lot of impact analysis. And one of the pieces of impact analysis that we did was in rural Bangladesh about whether or not a project that was teaching women to do, do new and different things with the cows that they owned, trying to get more milk from those cows. And it was my job to kind of figure out was this working or not. And what I realized was, I'm not going to go into all the mathematical details, but what I realized was the definition of working that was being mathematically implemented by myself and the funders was coming from an entirely different worldview. Something as simple as how we accounted for the time women spent on dairy in a mathematical model radically changed <laughs> the results about to the answer, you know, is this project working or not? And one of the things that we were accidentally embedding in that mathematical model was the superwoman complex, the idea that, you know, to be successful, you need to work a lot of hours. And what we're teaching them to do is do different things with cows and they are working many, many more hours and they are getting more milk. And so we deem this mathematically a success, whereas we hadn't taken into the mathematical equation. And then again, this is quantitative, not qualitative. We haven't put into the math, which is so easy to do if you want to do it, adjustments for how much time they were willing to increase, how much work they did with their cows in order to consider this a success. So that's one example among just hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of examples. Going back to something that you said earlier, Heather, about the fact that like the way that you approach equity is you intentionally don't have a definition of equity. It made me think that like when you're working particularly with like new clients, if that sort of gets you into a little bit of a, a pickle <laughs> where like you're... <sighs> I mean, I can envision a few things yes. happening. I, you're nodding vigorously, so maybe I'll just let... I, I haven't <laughs> even asked you the question, but I feel like you're, you're going there. I think I would say the, the one thing that came to mind was maybe that like in the course of not giving them a definition, which is important, they are not being equitable in there. They're, they're missing the mark. And then you're put in a position where you're you're being like sort of not the equity police, but you're, you're trying to put them on the, on the, on the path. And I wonder how you work through that with them. If it's through, you know, kind of focusing on the principles that you kind of talk about and, and you're on your website and kind of trying to guide them that way. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious how, how you navigate those tricky situations when you're working with a client. Great question. Thank you for asking that question. And yes, I am nodding my head vigorously because this, this does come up and a couple of different things. First of all, I personally do have several definitions of equity, but, but we all count as a project doesn't have a definition of equity that says, you know, this is what you must believe because that would be ridiculous for us, for what we're doing. It's not ridiculous for what other people are doing, but for what we're doing. So we did have to learn very early on <laughs> that we had to be explicit about that. That's why it's said many times on our website, because especially in the last number of years, people have started to kind of search out DEI consultants 
uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants. And we need to be pretty clear that we are not that. So we are not the person that you have to go to when you're trying to figure out what your equity goals are supposed to be. Once you know what they are, we can help you achieve them in your quantitative work. However, (laughs) having said that, even if you have no idea what your equity goals are supposed to be or want to be, what the majority of the We All Count tools do is help you understand in each specific choice that you're making in your evidence generation process, whose worldview or, or lived experience is being centered. So if you don't have an equity goal, that's not a problem because we can take you through your work and help you understand whose lived experiences are being centered right now. (laughs) And that in itself, even if you don't have an explicit equity goal, that in itself actually dramatically improves the research. Um, One of the things that I have to say continuously is that never, ever buy into the false dichotomy between rigorous science and equitable science. They are the same thing. And if you don't care about equity at all, but you want some good, rigorous, reliable, repeatable numbers, you should also be using these tools. (laughs) So that's the approach that we take. Yeah. I was listening to you so intently. And then I was like thinking about what my next question was going to be. And I was like, huh. So, and then I saw, I was like, I feel like Rebecca's going to ask a question and I got, I got sidetracked. No, I was just going to say that it was like the Zoom call standoff where you're like, <laughs> it was into somebody's <laughs> eyes and wondering if they're going to ask a question before. It was, uh, it was ahead. a little bit go of that. Yeah, no, it was, it was a yeah. little bit of that. I haven't had my, my coffee yet still this morning. <laughs> Aren't you in New York? It's one thirty. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's an off day. It's an off day. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, yeah. So that's a very helpful context that you just like laid out. So I, this might be a good segue to like talking about some of the, the tools that you have. Cause that was, it, it was really evident on your website, like just how thoughtful you guys are about putting a lot of information out there for people to like take this and run with it. It was not, I didn't come away with like this, like a, um, (laughs) yes, you run a business. However, it wasn't like this, um, okay, like enter in your email and, and then we'll you know, drop you a little nugget of information. I was like, there's, there's like a treasure trove of resources out here. And so I really appreciated that. So folks who are listening, you know, if you haven't already, if you're not like checking out the website, I mean, there's a lot of information and resources already available for you. I will say with the data equity framework that you had just mentioned as, so Rebecca's the the data person in this relationship. I am the non-data person in this relationship and it was accessible to me. Like I, so (laughs) that was like very telling as well as like the non-quantitative person. It was, I found the data framework to be extremely accessible. And so like your website does a really good job of explaining like the seven stages of examining a data project. So we're going to link to it in our episode page. And we definitely think that people should check it out. Can you dig in a little bit and like orient listeners to what that data equity framework is? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. And I'm delighted to hear that you you feel it's accessible to yourself. And it's so interesting that what school does does is is allows us to classify ourselves as as data people or not data people which of course is is problematic 
but anyways, um, <laughs> the idea, the reason that we make everything so available and we really do focus on trying to find that balance of, of including some like really mathematical technical stuff accompanied by some less formulaic, but still rigorous pieces is that this issue cannot be solved only by working with people who understand data <laughs> and who are, you know, who professionally do data analysis, because, you know, I can't become an engineer in my country without passing a very rigorous ethics test because people know that I will build a bridge and somebody might die and they need to know that I understand the human impact of that. And I can become a highly influential data scientist making decisions for large companies by taking a few online courses. And so this is one of the gaps between people who have a deep lived experience or formal training. There's many ways to get a deep understanding of um, the social issues, the human issues, without necessarily having formal data expertise and vice versa. So what we're really working to do is kind of bridge that gap. And I'm really happy that you feel like our site isn't, you know, like give us your email and we're going to like drip you messages forever until you pay us money. And then we're going to tell you what we really know, because we worked really hard to make it not like that. And if any of our tools are not available on our website, it's simply because we haven't had time to like build a version that is supportable on the website yet, (laughs) like it's coming. (laughs) And because there's no point in even getting involved in this work if your primary commitment isn't to having it be used. And um, that is for sure our primary commitment. And now to the question that you actually asked me, (laughs) which was, what is this thing, the data equity framework? So the data equity framework, and in hindsight, I'm not sure I would name it the framework again, is a way of thinking or, or a way of telling stories about data equity that we developed to help people reduce their feelings of overwhelm. When we start talking about data equity, Sometimes people get feeling really overwhelmed and it's impossible to just say, you know, look at a piece of research or look at an evaluation and please make this equitable. And that's that's not doable. And so the data equity framework is a way to kind of break down the different steps that are pretty close to universal in the development of any kind of a data project and orient yourself to kind of what step am I at? We have seven steps, but of course it's not a silo. It's very fluid, but we ha- we use the idea of seven steps. And then we have tools and choice points and checklists and examples, and most importantly, stories for each one of those seven steps so that you can orient yourself to like, okay, what part of this research project am I in? And what are the most important choices that I'm making? And whose lived experience is being centered in these choices right now? And whose lived experience do I wish was being centered? So that's the data equity framework. And I probably wouldn't call it a framework again, because it isn't, you don't have to stop doing things you're already doing or throw out your research process and use this research process. It has seven steps. You do not have to use the seven steps in order. It is not a recipe that has to be followed. It's really just layers of noticing the choices that you're making when you're creating research or evidence or, or data product. Who needs to be in the room when that's happening? Do you <laughs> recommend that certain people are in the room or is it possible for like one person to use this tool? Mm-hmm. Like, Oh yeah. 
for sure. Yes, it's absolutely possible for one person on a team to use this tool. And frankly, that's the way it often starts, that one or two people who are interested and driven uh, learn how to use some of the tools and start applying them to their work. And in fact, we suggest that that's the best way to go, that that small sustainable steps that demonstrate the value and reduce the fear is actually the most effective way to get equity to stick into your data product or your research process. Because trying to like do it a whole new way in in some kind of an all or nothing, it just doesn't stick. It leads to more overwhelm. And what it leads to is more people pretending. It leads to more performative equity, but less actual equity. Has it evolved over time? I mean, you're already sharing ways in which you might do it differently if you were to, but in what ways has it evolved (laughs) since you started doing it? (laughs) This is our biggest issue is that it evolves every day. (laughs) I I can imagine. (laughs) Because like in your kind of, when you were getting me ready for the podcast, you said thinking back to the 1.0 version of this framework. And I was like, no such thing exists. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's just, I think just because of the nature of, of my own personality and the team of people and the type of people that I work with, our biggest problem is stop creating new things and teach enough people to use the, the current things <laughs> or the current ways. And like we're, we're doing now some, we've done a lot of kind of introduction workshops and now we're doing advancing workshops and we're realizing that people are going to have to, we're going to have to update some of the people that took the, the foundations workshop like last year because it's so different. So it just refines. We, I mean, the, the, the creed of we all count is learning out loud. I am a white person and I absolutely have been living in a white privilege world for my whole life. And I have just countless places where white privilege and various other things, colonialism are, are embedded into the way that I see the world. And frankly, I used to think that the biggest issue about getting people to start embedding equity in data was the lack of tools. And now I think it's the second biggest thing. The first biggest thing is people being afraid to do it wrong. And of course, that is a statement of white privilege because we're, we are doing it wrong. <laughs> That's a given. <laughs> like That is happening. So why not? <laughs> admit that and try and do it at least a little bit more right. And so we we do not claim to have this all worked out. We claim to be learning out loud. Who are your typical clients? Are they typically individuals with a data science background coming to you and learning, wanting to learn how to do this work? Or is it organizations that feel like their embedded practices are, are somehow problematic? Or is it a combination? I'm just curious. Yeah, it's a really diverse combination. We have, of course, a lot of people who work with data every day in a more like social science setting. So like evaluation or public service who who don't consider themselves kind of hardcore data people. But frankly, those people, that sector of society is probably the most important data workers that we have because they're the ones that are doing a ton of the data collection. They're the ones that are making decisions or feeding information to policymakers and 
funders and all the rest. So that's an overlooked but incredibly powerful segment of the of the kind of research generation population. And so we we have a lot of individuals that come and then um, almost immediately bring their teams and their organizations. We have people who come after they've made a big mistake and people have found out about it after after your name appears in a uh, in a newspaper. <laughs> people often want to figure out how to do it. And then and then, of course, more and more, thankfully, more and more of the public sector, the corporate sector, the social sector, the philanthropic sector are putting into writing that they would like to use data with equity. But again, uh, have this big gap in how the heck we're going to do that. And so that's probably where we would get more organizations. But every day is so, so different here. It's just, yeah, I don't think we have a typical colleague. When you said earlier that you're constantly like thinking of new tools to create or revising the tools that you have, like even last year, like revising the Foundations 1.0, where is that? impetus coming, like what, where are you doing your learning that's then prompting you to make these changes? Is it your own experience? Is it something you're reading? Is this like a combination of things? Yeah, I would say that a lot of the impetus to create new things is daily or weekly direct contact with people who are trying to work out these issues. And I'm a very, very tactical, hands-on kind of a person. And so I spend a lot of my time, as much of my time as I can, meeting with people one-on-one, meeting with people. We have like these open office hours where anybody can come or teaching workshops. And the questions that they ask and the, and the scenarios that people bring are just heart-wrenching, just so many, once you open up the door as kind of an equity data therapist and find out what's going on, it just breaks my heart every day. And it just makes me like blind with rage every day. And so that drives me a lot. Where I get ideas is I read a lot and I'm a voracious podcast listener. And I I really try and listen and read widely in as many different parts of the globe and disciplines and points of view as possible. Yeah. We do a a lot of education research. And so I've been Mm. thinking a lot about this in the context of education. And I'm curious if, you know, how many of your clients come from that sector, either as education researchers, or maybe they work for local districts, and the extent to which you've seen any kind of movement in in that field uh, toward thinking about equitable data practices. I I think it's something I think that the sector is really concerned about. I don't know that the data science has caught up to, to that concern. And so I'm just, I'm curious just about what you've seen and the types of issues that you see in in the education sector in your work? Great question. And we have a very, very large group of people who do research and education involved at We All Count. Some of them are kind of formal, you know, PhD, working in some kind of a formal institution, doing educational effectiveness research. Other people are incredibly informal and just working at a grassroots you know, teen support organization, and then everything in the middle of, you know, philanthropists, charter schools, school districts, departments of education. And I'm very, very 
grateful for that opportunity because I do think that it's one of the places where as we increase equity in the way that data is used, important lives will improve. So I'm very, very grateful that we have this interest from the educational research sector. And I'm very optimistic. I mean, absolutely. I, I know many people who, who do believe in that, what I think is the false dichotomy between rigorous science and equitable science. And that like, this is just a politically correct piece of wishy-washy fluff that really has nothing to do with science. But I have never had, and I'm very happy to talk to those people because they will help me understand gaps in our thinking and places where we do need to think more deeply or think differently. But I've never had a conversation with a person of that attitude who's been able to show me mathematically (laughs) where there is actually a dichotomy between rigorous science and equitable science. Sometimes they can show me like how, you know, somebody's opinion or something, but yeah, I don't bias <laughs> at this point, but I'm very, very optimistic. There's a huge, huge cohort of researchers. I was going to see younger researchers, but not just younger researchers at all. Uh, there's a lot of younger and up and coming kind of bright minds, but there's also a lot of people who have been around like myself, who are kind of like, you know, we're at a certain point of maturity where we're just like not putting up with the bullshit anymore. And like, we're going to say it like it is. So the education system is a particularly powerful place to make strides. And it's also a hard place to make strides because there's so much legislation. Legislation around things like how efficacy has to be tested, which are based on rules or systems or theories that aren't actually about scientific rigor. They're just about somebody's preference. And there's a lot of that embedded in accreditation systems and in effectiveness evaluations and things like that. There's some very deeply formally codified issues that were, it's going to take some political power to change. So we got a long way to go on that, but there's a lot you can do in between what you're doing on a daily basis and changing the law. (laughs) And one leads to another. One really interesting thing that's happening in the education sector is that in places where it's optional to like fill out a social identity thing where you have to identify yourself as like girl, boy, X or black, white, Latinx, other young people just aren't filling that out anymore. And so there's going to be kind of a natural organic breakdown (laughs) of what we can and can't do with the data, which I am hopeful is going to kind of help nudge the process along. I'm curious if you see, there's probably, you see probably flaws all along the way, but, you know, in terms of, it, it seems like there could be problems with what's being measured as a way of, you know, figuring out if kids are learning. There's probably issues in how it's being measured. There's probably even issues in not not just the actual testing instrument, but the testing procedures and the processes by which we're we're collecting uh, data from what are very young children often. And then there's issues probably with, you know, at the the analysis level. And then I guess there's issues too at the reporting level. I'm really just talking about your framework, I guess, at this point. But I'm curious, where do you see the, the biggest issues? Do you see... Well, I guess let, let me ask a, a, a different way to show how optimistic I am. 
where do you think that you're able to have the biggest traction as an organization with education researchers? Is it in the, do you feel like you can impact that kind of what's being measured, which I think does have, is really firmly rooted in not just like colonial ways of thinking, but, you know, there's, there's all sorts of policy layers <laughs> that you have to get through before we could kind of change that versus, you know, having an impact on the how they're doing their analyses and how they're reporting and uh, maybe tempering the types of claims they can make given the, the data that's being used. Yes. So I'm not sure if I would be able to identify a single point at which I think we have the most traction because it really varies from what type of organization we're working with or what what locus of power an individual has that we're working with. But I will say that if we were all to change only one part of kind of that process that you just described, that I think would have the most sustained impact, I think it would be the communication part. Because if we were to start communicating honestly about what we did during the data collection, what we did when we decided what to measure, what we did when we actually measured it, and what we did when we analyzed it, the process would become a heck of a lot more transparent and it would be much more obvious what decisions can and cannot be made with this research product. And so I, I don't think that the communication is the biggest problem, but I think, I think there's a, and I also think there's a lot of room for improving the communication without changing policies, without revolutionizing budgets, without throwing out the ways that we collect demographic data or social identity data. For example, in a, just a really, really simple change of when we're talking about some research, where do we put the onus to change? Do we say our new school project helped reduce the gap uh, between Black student dropout and white student dropout? That is a very problematic sentence because we're putting the onus to change on the behavior of Black students and we're defining success as the behavior of the white students. We're saying our program did a great job at getting Black students to start behaving like white students. And hardly ever is that actually what we even researched. What we probably researched is our program did a good job of reducing barriers that Black students face remaining in our school. And so like changing that communication changes so much about what we think about that research. Or Black kids are having trouble in New York City getting ready for kindergarten. It's so problematic, but young students that are experiencing racism are having trouble getting ready for kindergarten. It's so much more equitable or not even equitable, but like real. And, you know, in, in education, you can't often change the way that data is collected. So, you know, we have gender being collected as male, female X. And if you're honest about that, when you're communicating, it uncovers, you know, uh, 5% of our student body identified uh, with a gender identity of X from a choice of male, female, or X whose categories were mandated by such and such an organization. Like, we really think that you need to be transparent about the power dynamics 
in research that when you when you report on something like social identity data, along with whatever results you're reporting, also needs to go in clear, plain language what boxes these people were asked to sort themselves into, and most importantly, who got to put out and label the boxes. So I think communication doesn't take new legislation, doesn't take new budgets, does take a whole lot of courage. (laughs) And it struck me that some of the things that you were mentioning that should be communicated are some of the things that as researchers were sometimes told, like, put it in the end, put it in appendix, like, the constraints, the limitations, like we don't want to hear that. Like, just give me the soundbite, like give, give me the bottom line. And it's, I was struck by like how to strike that balance of like knowing what to pull in, we- weaving that, those limitations and constraints in, in an effective way, you know, like not yes. spilling everything, but being really pointed. Yes, absolutely. And the only reason that people have a long history of saying that is because there's just, myth that if it's a number, it's objective. If it's a number, it doesn't have a worldview. So all of these like other things are just like small asterisks that like, if you really are a nerd and you want to get into it, but the truth about quantitative data is that it's just, we're just accustomed to it being so deeply embedded with kind of a formal academic white, usually male viewpoint that it passes for no viewpoint. (laughs) Like it's so embedded with the dominant viewpoint that it appears to us to have no viewpoint. And if we're asked to report data with no context, we're aligning ourselves with that idea that, you know, everything that quietly says, (laughs) this is deeply embedded with the kind of, I mean, even if it's not white male, just conventional conventional research, it's still what, you know, Western academic, conventional Western academic research process, which claims to be equitable, claims to be objective. But, you know, if you push the math a little too hard, it's very easy to see why it's not. It only takes reading one academic article. I mean, just from the, if you read an, uh, an article that was written by an education economist, let's say, it takes, you know, you're two and a half pages in and you realize all of the insane assumptions or manipulations of data that have to occur for them to make these claims. And I, I have no problem with that, but it, to say that <laughs> this, the numbers speak for themselves <laughs> when clearly like there has been a process that's been embedded with our own like ideas and, you know, theories about how things are supposed to work in the world. And oftentimes it's inaccessible to anyone who doesn't have the pretty sophisticated technical skills. And so it's just, you know, this idea that it's somehow objective uh, is it's silly. <laughs> I mean, it's silly if you ever pick up an article and try to read it because you're like, what does it mean? What does this even mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think that it's good. You know, sometimes people say, well, we can't all analyze data with your worldview. And I'm like, yes, exactly. I would hope not. And the whole idea is not that in order to be have good evidence or good research, you you needed to have adopted a certain point of view. People often say, you know, if I do it this way, will it be equitable? And I'm like, that's not how this works. How it works is you have documented the way that you've done it, not just with attention to technical mathematical details, which are very important, but also with attention to power and decision-making. And 
I do not believe for one second that there's any part of the research process that can't be documented in a way that people understand. <laughs> like, I understand that it's not always appropriate in every circumstance and that it's fine to have different audiences for different communication styles, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible. <laughs> I don't think academic journals are wrong, uh, but to think that that's the only way that you can explain these choices and things is, which is something I hear a lot and just don't agree with at all. I had a quick thought. Do you see this as an ethical issue that should be or could be addressed through like institutional review boards? Or, you know, when you do, I think a lot of times data scientists don't even have to go through an IRB because they're using like extant data that you know, and they're not interacting with humans in the way that, let's say, a qualitative researcher or even a survey researcher. And, but in order to, you know, you have to answer a bunch of questions about how you get, you know, that take into account kind of fairness of the process, how, you know, how you're going to report on the data, et cetera. It seems like a similar type of process could be applied to data science, where it just forces <laughs> researchers kind of ahead of time to think through these issues in a way that maybe you know, they wouldn't if there wasn't this like oversight committee, you know, that's the purpose of an IRB, let's say. And as much as the IRBs drive me crazy, and I can't believe I'm even saying this, I think that having this kind of imposing body <laughs> overlooking your work and forcing you to ask those types of questions is actually really healthy for the field. I don't know if there's uh, a question in there. Just yes. curious if you thought about that. <laughs> But we do have you on tape in favor of IRBs, which uh, we <laughs> yeah, uh, IRBs have strengths and weaknesses. I personally wish IRBs had a little more representation on those Bs of people whose data would actually be used. But that's a, probably another podcast. Mostly, I think this is my my response is going to be really about my personality more than about truth <laughs> and. I have a lot more hope in equity becoming uh, an expected element in the way that we use data when the demand side is driven by it, when people won't make decisions, when people won't accept your data, when people won't answer your surveys without equity. I don't think that a governing body is going to solve this problem, but Again, I think that answer reflects my personality, not maybe the truth, <laughs> which is why I'm well-suited for doing what I'm doing rather than, I mean, there's other people that are working on these issues within institutions and things like that. That's just not a good fit for my skills and my personality. I'm mindful of the time and I know that we only have you for a few more minutes, unfortunately. And so I wanted to start to gently wrap things up by asking a different question than the vein that we've been talking about. Um, I noticed that you are starting up a equity advisory group and that seemed really interesting to me. And I thought um, it would be great to have you kind of talk a little bit about, you know, that initiative and, and how you're going to leverage that group within your work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. That is something that we've, we've been working on it for quite a while, but we've managed to actualize it. And a couple of different things about the equity advisory group. The equity advisory group is 
a group of people with a wide variety of lived experiences, educational experiences, topical interests, affinities that we pay. And um, they are the highest paid people at the We All Count organization. And um, their job is not to uh, act as gatekeepers or um, tokens for our inclusiveness. Um, Their job is to basically give us shit (laughs) as often and frequently as they're up for it. That is what we ask of them. And mostly it is because of what we have been talking about today, uh, which is that equity is an extremely diverse thing. It's a process, not a product. It's dynamic. It's not static. And it doesn't matter if you're a good person, a bad person, a racist person, a not racist person, you are absolutely going to have blind spots and worldviews. The whole point is that everybody has their worldview and that we'll never be able to really make substantial progress without as many different worldviews making um, substantive contributions as possible. And one of the things that I get asked with a fair degree of regularity is like, you're a white person. Why should you be able to tell me what to do? And I say, well, no, I, I shouldn't. And I, I'm not, uh, there is no one that I am in a position in this world of telling them what to do, not a single person. And so I, I definitely am not telling you what to do. Um, the data equity framework and we all count is showing you tools that we have found work to align your data work with your your equity goals. And if you don't want to use them, that is fine. <laughs> like I'm no part of no regulatory body or accreditation or anything else. And we love it when people say we found something that worked better. I mean, that's that's a great day for us. So that's my first answer when somebody says you're a white woman, why should you tell me what to do? I, I am not. Um, but the second thing is, is that I am representative of a big group of people who were the ones that screwed it up. And a lot of people that I talk to say, yeah, uh, you as a white person should go talk to the other white people and teach them how to stop making this worse. (laughs) Like, I don't actually want to spend my time running workshops and doing all these coaching sessions. Like that's just asking a person of color to fix racism or a woman to fix sexism or a queer person to fix homophobia. Like, I mean, if if that person wants to, but there's certainly no expectation. It, It should be the the person who screwed it up should be working on fixing it. And I'm absolutely a representative of the group of people that screwed this up. And so that's why it's really important that we have well-paid people who get to inform the process of getting it unscrewed up without having to make it their full-time job. (laughs) That's, That's the idea behind the advisory group. So that's one of several reasons that we're putting together the advisory group. And so far it's going really well. That's awesome. Are you still like accepting applications or do you want to plug any, uh, is, is it done on like a cohort basis? We'll, we'll post um, all No, this. it's, it's not done on a cohort basis. Um, so far it's been invitation only, but uh-huh. if you are interested, uh, absolutely send me an email because we would accept interest <laughs> for sure. So yeah, uh, we, we are accepting interest. Um, we, we mostly invite people who are either inspiring us with the work that they're doing, um, sending us amazing resources with their work, or already giving a shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
and sometimes they're like no we're too busy and you know you you stay over there and fix this but sometimes they're like oh yes (laughs) get paid to give you shit for sure (laughs) excellent oh part of our listenership often includes um like young up and coming evaluators and Mm. you know folks like that are early stage like early career rather yeah so i was i was thinking about them and and how yeah, it's helpful for them to know that these things exist and what's what's going on, what's out there. So let me see, let's bring this on home. There's, I feel like there's so many things that you're doing and opportunities to follow your work. Feel free to share any any platforms or any ways that people can follow what you're doing or any initiatives that you have coming up in the near term that you might want folks to know about and get involved with. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you. You're so generous with your uh, resources and your audience. I'm delighted to hear that a lot of (laughs) up-and-coming evaluators are in your audience because it's so powerful. That's that's where the real power lies. So um, if if you are interested and you're <laughs> you're an up and comer, absolutely get in touch. We do offer public facing workshops um, that do cost money, but we do reserve twenty five percent of the seats in every single one of those workshops for either um, free or scholarship seats. There's a link on the website. Money should never be uh, a reason that you don't come. So feel free to reach out. And in terms of keeping in touch with the work and following it, the only reliable way to do that right now is the newsletter. Um, we, I have a Twitter account. I have an Instagram account, but I, <laughs> I'm just so, so busy that yeah. I, I'm just not a natural Twitter or Instagram user. So you can follow us there, but I, I honestly, frankly, wouldn't bother. Uh, I would subscribe to the newsletter. It comes out pretty close to once a week, not not once a week, uh, every time. And for 2022, what we're really focused on is we plan to, if things go well, to launch a We All Count Data Equity Forum, which would be open to anybody. You don't have to have taken a course because that's the really the next thing is that people really want a good space to talk to each other and share resources. They have a pretty good space to talk to us, but we really want them to be able to talk to each other. And we've tried a couple of different things, but they all turned out to be either evil or or uh, <laughs> hard to access. So um, we've spent about six months getting somebody to build us a hopefully not evil, very accessible platform. <laughs> where, so if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll hear about that when we launch it. And it should be early 2022. Oh, that's exciting. I hope it brings like a community of like-minded folks that are in it to um, support each other and help each other through these like real prickly um, issues. Yeah. That's awesome. That's the idea. Well, thank you for having me. This was a lovely conversation. I really Mm -hmm. enjoyed meeting the two of you and uh, it was great. Yeah. Thank you. We'll, we'll have to do a uh, so part much. two as your time allows. And we'll, we'll just do the B's and IRBs. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have a whole conversation about IRBs. I might tap out. I'll leave it to you and Rebecca. <laughs> now that we have Rebecca on. Tape. We might have to bring alcohol, Heather. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a whole Fair other enough. podcast. That's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank All you. Right. Well, this was great. We really appreciate Appreciate it. Sure. Anytime. Yeah. I'll definitely do part two whenever you want. Well, not whenever you want, but whenever I can. Right. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I really Excellent. liked your questions. It was great. It was a good conversation. 
thank you so much for joining our conversation with Heather. Our next episode is actually the last one for this season. Rebecca and I are going to debrief on what we learned from this season's guests. The conversations this year have felt just particularly important this year. And we want to make some space for reflecting on those and not just move on and rush on to the next thing. And so we hope in doing that, it'll actually inspire you to reflect on what you've learned this year as well, not just from our podcast, but from you know your personal, your professional life and how that's all integrating for you. So I hope you'll join us. I hope it prompts some thoughts for you as we step into this new year coming up 2022. So thank you as always for being on this journey with us until next time.